Ladies and gentlemen, we are gathered here today to bereave the loss of something dear to us. We are here today to say goodbye to a special friend, to say goodbye to an idea. Some might say that to be here gathered today to mourn the loss of a car would be going too far. In 1996, electric cars began to appear on roads all over California. They were quiet and fast, produced no exhaust, and ran without gasoline. Ten years later, these futuristic cars were almost entirely gone. What happened? Why should we be haunted by the ghost of the electric car? This wasn't the first time the electric car was killed. 100 years ago, there were more electrics on the road than there were gas cars. For many people, electric cars were the car of choice. They were quiet and smooth and could be charged at home. Gas cars, by comparison, required cranking and produced exhaust. Well, the reason I am here, I'm so old, I remember electric cars when they were around in the beginning. I would have been about six years old on the way to the symphony in that darling little electric car. They were very quiet and it had beveled glass windows. It was almost like sitting inside of a huge lamp. What happened? Why did the gas car win over the electric car? As the 20th century gathered speed, the electric car lost momentum. Automatic starters, cheaper oil, and mass production gave the edge to the gasoline car. By 1920, the internal combustion engine had won the race for control of the roads, and the modern automobile age was born. Of the hundreds of millions of cars built in the 20th century, almost none were electric. They were sleek, they were fast, and they gave Americans the open road. But as time went on, their number one flaw became more apparent. Smog. California has the worst air quality in the nation and it impacts some of our largest population centers. In my district we have what is called the black cloud of death that hangs over the port areas and the areas surrounding the ports. We are seeing some tremendously debilitating effects. Asthma rates, cancer rates, uh, lung development in children, uh, children not being allowed to play outside. In 1989 a study found that one out of four 15 to 25-year-olds in Los Angeles County had severe lung lesions and chronic respiratory disease. In 1990, 
there were 41 stage one smog alerts. No matter what kind of car we drive, every gallon of gas we burn adds 19 pounds of carbon dioxide to the air. The more gas we burn, the more CO2 we create. If you don't do something with that CO2, if you don't sequester it, uh, then it's going to be going up into the atmosphere and CO2 is a global warming gas. I believe the problems of uh, global warming will be far greater than the problems of social security or even the problems of war on terrorism. We got the equivalent of a nuclear time bomb on our hands with global warming if lung disease from air pollution is unimportant, if all those things don't count, uh, we're going to be in bad trouble. And there's a public health crisis that we have to have incentives and we have to have alternatives. Car companies experimented with alternatives over the years, but none of them ever seemed to make it out of the proving grounds. I remember I, I was the chairman of the board of the Tennessee Valley Authority, and uh, we were promoting the electric car back in the late 70s. I had even uh, planned a race from Gatlinburg, Tennessee to Nashville between Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And I had it all lined up and then I realized that we'd get a lot of national publicity, but there were no, there were no cars in the showrooms. It would take a different kind of race to make the electric car the car of the future. The Sun Racer was a solar powered vehicle that was developed here at Aerovironment. Uh, for the uh, purpose of winning a race. In 1987, GM won the World Solar Challenge race in Australia with a one-of-a-kind solar-powered electric vehicle, the Sun Racer. Emboldened by their success, GM CEO Roger Smith challenged the same design team to build a prototype for a practical electric car. If we were to go full speed ahead with electric cars, the electronics had to be good enough in order to warrant that concept. And that's where the work of Alan Cacconi came in. Now, you built the, the, the prototype for this in, uh, in your garage? Yeah, so my garage isn't quite the average garage. It's actually a pretty good machine shop and electronics lab. But yes, I built it there. It's like a three-channel stereo amplifier that provides the right size sine waves and right frequency to drive the motor for all the different driving conditions. So it is a 100,000-watt stereo amplifier. Allen's breakthrough power system helped create an electric car unlike any that had ever been driven before. Oh, they had kept this car also a secret, much better than any other Detroit secret because it was all developed out here in California. So it, it truly was a surprise when it was introduced to Los Angeles Auto Show. This is going to represent a great step forward for people in terms of commuting to work, from work, if you don't have to go more than 120 miles a day. Other than the jokes that we made about the wisdom of calling a vehicle the impact, um, it was very impressive. It was a high, very high tech, and it had an interesting premise that we've got this sort of Corvette electric type car, two-seater, slick styling and all that, and that we can make a business out of it. Well, it's interesting, I, I had worked with the program manager who then called me and said, would you like to be on the electric vehicle program? And I said, that's fine, what do you want me to do? And he said, very simply, develop demand for electric vehicles worldwide. And I said, do you have any instructions? And he took a blank piece of paper and shoved it in front of me and he said, no instructions, you go figure it out. And so at that point, I joined the program. 
Uh, it got a lot of interest flowing in the industry, uh, but it, it did something else. It caught the attention of the California Air Resources Board. California's Air Resources Board, or CARB as it was known, saw the electric car as an opportunity to solve another problem. Since GM had already announced that they were going to produce an electric vehicle before we even adopted the mandate, the electric vehicle technology became sort of the technology of greatest promise. Knowing a modern electric car was now possible, California regulators took a bold and unprecedented step. They passed the zero emissions vehicle mandate. The mandate was simple. If automakers wanted to continue to sell cars in California, some of those cars would have to be vehicles with no exhaust. They decided we're going to ramp it up. We're going to say 2% in 98. We're going to say 5% in 2001 and 10% in 2003. For the car companies, there were only two options. Comply with the law or fight it. In the end, they would do both. The impact prototype became the EV1, the first modern electric production car from a major U.S. car company in nearly a century. GM chose its Saturn division to market it in California and Arizona. I bought my first Saturn at 17 and they said, do you want to come work here? And so I thought, okay, it would be a good college job. I'll put myself through college this way. And Turned out I loved the cars more than I loved what I was studying in college. And three years later, they announced the EV1 program, and I jumped on it. There were the 13 of us, most of whom were mid-20s, unattached, single, no kids, willing to do anything for little money. <laughs> we all handled a particular geographic region. Mine started as LA, and I worked with everybody from engineers and students to celebrities. picture of myself just hearing this Saturn song and just being so happy. I had one of those early EV ones and I used it here in the Capitol. I love the car. It's sort of like everything Americans want in a car. It, they're cool, they're fast, they're sexy. I mean, I got in the car and I felt like, ooh. It was fairly reasonably priced. It was between $250 and $500 a month. I haven't tried accelerating too much because there's too many cops around. I'm afraid I'll get a ticket. I'll be too excited. Believe it or not, that sucker goes. That really? thing will take you down the PCH so fast you could get a ticket. I did kind of feel like Batman. You know, that sort of like, Wee! and the way it takes off out of the cave. You know, I have this gate that opens and you go, you get inside and the console is really near you and the lighting is beautiful. It was quiet. The car was so fast it looked like it would outrun its own shadow. Oh, it was an awesome car to drive. It was the, the crest of a wave that we thought was coming in. It was the new thing that was going to 
you know, change the way everybody travels. Other car companies began to comply, often with conversions of gas cars, but with many of the same advantages of the EV1. I'm not mechanical at all, and I love dealing with my electric car because it's so easy. I plug it in at night, and when I need to drive it, I unplug, drive it away. They're for people who love the environment. I, I said they're just for people who love cars. They're for people who have to go somewhere. Well, this is amazing. What you do is with this electric car, Dave, you put the key in, mm -hmm. and you turn it. Wow. And then there's this thing on the floor called the pedal. A pedal. The exciting thing about this is the cost of operating the car is the same as if you were driving a typical gasoline car, but the gasoline only costs 60 cents a gallon. Going to the gas station is a hassle, believe it or not. Plugging a car in is not. The battery that you charge at home, it uh, gets about between 70 and 80 miles per charge, which for me is more than all the driving that I need to do in the course of a day. People started seeing the cars on the road and getting a better understanding of what they could do. Friends and neighbors and relatives started saying, hey, that's a neat idea, you know, I should get one of those. And we started seeing the momentum building for this and the waiting lists being created for these cars. Cut to. Cut to, I go online to look for other Toyota RAV4s and I see Toyota RAV4 EV. And I said, what's that? Click. Wow, my whole world opened up. It's this electric vehicle. It goes, you know, 100 miles to a charge, blah, 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 blah. It's just like, I didn't know this existed. I, I didn't know this was a possibility. H how come I don't know about this? Have you seen this on TV? When I first tried to buy the Honda EV Plus, I drove in and I said, hey, this is a great car. I said, I'll take it. it the, the, the person who was trying to sell it to us was dumbfounded. He didn't know what to do. He had never, never leased one before, didn't know how to do it, and it took me six weeks of negotiations before I was able to get the car from their hands. There's nothing like driving a car where you realize you, as you're sitting in traffic, there's, there's no pollution coming out of your tailpipe. There's, you're just sitting there with batteries on by driving an electric car, what are you sparing us from? I'm saving America, Dave. That's what I'm doing. I am saving America uh, by driving an electric car. Not everyone was sure that electric cars would save America. Even as GM rolled out its first batch of EV1s, there were skeptics. Consumer acceptance and understanding has been a key issue in all of this. Um, and what we've discovered is that people are very cautious about the electric car. I would consider it, but I, I don't know. I haven't done enough research, and I don't know if they're, like, I don't know if they're big enough, if they're going to be strong and big and dependable. I have to know where I can go to, like, recharge it, or how do, what do I got to do for the battery? People don't want a mini, tiny car that has 15-inch wheels on there. How is he going to fix that up and go around the town and parade it? While some consumers express skepticism about electric cars, California was pressured to drop the mandate. A group called Californians Against Utility Company Abuse fought a small utility surcharge to build charging stations. And they would go to local city council meetings and say, you don't want to put in an electric vehicle charging station there. That's a waste of, of taxpayer money. They had this list of supporters, you know, companies like Trader Joe's and others, which you'd say, like, why would they support something like this? So the EV drivers actually got together and started writing letters to some of these people that were listed on their website as being supporters and said, do you realize what you're supporting here? And they, and they got all these names removed from the list. Further investigation revealed that these groups were consumer organizations in name only, funded almost exclusively by the oil industry. 
Oil companies also paid for editorials in national publications. They even argued that the environmental benefits of EVs were dubious. With electric vehicles, we're going to have to shift our energy away from oil. And if we shift it to coal, there are some environmental problems that are just very disconcerting. Right now in the United States, we're 55% coal. If you run the numbers with standard coal power plants, you don't end up with a better environmental performance. You end up with a longer tailpipe. Well, there have been numerous studies conducted by the California Energy Commission that clearly show that electric drive is substantially more efficient and substantially less polluting, even if you get your electricity from coal-fired plants. But the arguments against electrics did not stop there. They even made the ridiculous argument that there was an environmental justice issue involved because they said only rich people could buy electric cars. Well, the air doesn't know a boundary between Brentwood and South L.A. Car companies began to argue that the mandate was too strict. We, we had to help with the regulations. The regulatory people knew nothing about this stuff. And we began to get the eerie feeling that we were going over a cliff. It wasn't going to be possible. California was faced with the prospect of what do you do if the car companies don't comply? And so rather than you know, do brinksmanship about what would happen if they didn't comply and stick with it, they started negotiating um, you know, certain flexibility in the mandate. California compromised with the automakers, adopting a memorandum of agreement. One of the agreements with the state was that the automakers would build and market electric vehicles in accordance with demand. If they didn't want to build more of them, the car companies would have to make the case that there was no demand. The person will go unnamed, but we were having a, a lunch in the executive dining room at the uh, GM Tech Center one day. And just the two of us, and he leans over to me and he says, Dobbles, you know something? You're my worst enemy. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, I'm out there lobbying to show that there's no demand for electric vehicles, and you're out there proving me wrong. We would sit down with Hal Reiney or with executives from GM and make, you know, how far, how fast, how much? These are the three questions we're getting. Please put it in the advertising. It's not rocket science. And they would go back and do the exact opposite. You know, we never saw a TV ad with an electric car scampering up the side of a hill with a good-looking man or woman draped around it. That's the way they sell cars. How does it go without gas and air? How does it go without sparks and explosions? How does it go without gears or transmissions? How does it go, you will ask yourself. And then, you will ask, how did we go so long without it? The electric car, it isn't coming. It's here. What was the objective of these advertisements? Was it to entice consumers? or to scare them away. Our goal at GM was to make the full functioning battery electric vehicle a commercially viable business opportunity for General Motors. GM spokesman Dave Bothmas has worked for GM for nearly 10 years. We spent in excess of $1 billion 
to drive this market, to build the market. That means award-winning advertising, developing the vehicle, developing the re uh, recharging infrastructure. And in a four-year time frame, from roughly 1996 to 2000, we were able to lease 800 EV1s. So we started this waiting list in order to prove demand to GM. But no matter how many people we got on that list, it was never considered enough demand. Everything was anecdotal to GM. We have heard about these long waiting lists. And frankly, we did have a list of roughly 4,000 people that raised their hands and said, you know, I would be interested in getting into an EV1 and being an EV1 leasee. We contacted each of those folks, and we whittled that list down. And when we actually got down to a point where we were able to have somebody sign on the dotted line, that list from 4,000 people shrunk to about 50. Only recently did they finally admit that there actually was a waiting list and tried to explain it away of by the time we explained all the limitations of the car to them, only 50 would sign up. Well, if you sincerely want to market a product, you don't start out by describing the limitations of the product. Tom Everhart is President Emeritus at Caltech. He served on GM's board of directors for 13 years. I do not think General Motors tried hard to get the electric cars out rapidly. Now, whether the CEO of General Motors understood that, I don't know. We had to ask permission of whoever we wanted to give a car to, and in, by the end, when we were low on cars, we had to write case statements. We tried to put the cars in hands of celebrities because they were, number one, the only ones that stood a chance of getting the car. The third grade science teacher didn't stand a chance. I had to write a resume for Mel Gibson and what he'd done and accomplished because the people I was talking to didn't believe that he warranted a car. I was wondering, why do I have to fill this out, you know? You had to tell them where your birthmarks were, you know? I mean, it was everything, you know? Have you recently had a proctoscope uh, inserted into your, well, no. Uh, you know, you had, to, you had to get really specific about a whole bunch of things. Consumers wanted it, but they regarded it as a limited vehicle and they expected to pay a limited price for it. And there's nothing irrational about the consumer that said that to us. That's a perfectly reasonable statement. You're giving me a vehicle that does less, I want to pay less. Okay. But unfortunately, I couldn't make it for less. They argued things like money and they're too expensive to build, and yet they're building four a day. I mean, they were very hand-built cars with specialized components, and had they mass-marketed them, they of course would have come down. As car companies made the case there was no demand, electric vehicle advocates thought they had a sympathetic ear with the appointment of environmental scientist Dr. Alan Lloyd as chairman of the California Air Resources Board. First time uh, I presided over that, I felt that the car companies weren't making significant effort to do it, so I felt that, well, flog them harder, flog them often. They need to do better. For the regulation, we felt needed to be changed drastically. And there was some movement that way, but but it didn't go away. While the car companies fought the mandate in Sacramento, GM quietly closed its EV1 assembly line and began laying off its sales force. All of a sudden, we were not only taken off the project, but taken out of the company. They started with the ones with the most, the biggest waiting list and the most customers, and you know the primary areas were the ones that they dismantled first. And so at the end of 2001, you know, that was it in terms of my employment with General Motors. Studying General Motors practices over the years, and I don't speak for the engineers and scientists who would really have liked to have done a better job with uh, motor vehicle technology, but the executives at the top, their motto seemed to have been going backwards into the future. And that's what they've been doing uh, for decades. 
As a veteran consumer advocate, Ralph Nader used grassroots campaigns to make cars safer and more fuel efficient. He's familiar with the tactics used by the auto industry to resist change. There are all kinds of ways that they can bring politicians to their knees. Once the auto companies get a long lead time, then they go to work eroding, eroding, and then when the deadline is approaching, you say we can't do it, and there are going to be terrible consequences. Automakers took the fight to a new level. They sued California's Air Resources Board. GM led the lawsuit, soon joined by Chrysler and several auto dealerships. As California withered under the pressure, the carmakers found a powerful new ally, the federal government. Shortly after joining the suit, the Bush administration made another announcement. Tonight I'm proposing $1.2 billion in research funding so that America can lead the world in developing clean, hydrogen-powered automobiles. The federal government joined the car and oil industries to embrace a new clean car of the future. With more than a billion federal dollars up for grabs, over the next few years, the campaign for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles began to sway California. Hello there and welcome to the California Fuel Cell Partnership, where we're fueling the future in a new and environmentally friendly way. Automakers, energy and technology providers, along with government agencies, are voluntarily working together to commercialize the fuel cell for cars and buses. Soon you may see some of these cars cruising through your very own neighborhood. We will not just dream about the hydrogen fueling stations. We will not just dream about the hydrogen cars. We will build it. The hydrogen Hummer is not a production vehicle. It's a concept vehicle. It's a way for Governor Schwarzenegger to have a property at various events that he goes to when he unveils a, a new hydrogen refueling station at LAX, for example. I'm going to encourage the building of a hydrogen highway to take us to the environmental future. While hydrogen fuel cells offered an exciting alternative sometime in the future, what would happen to the technology of today? What would happen to the electric car? It all came down to a decisive meeting at California's Air Resources Board. Citizens and industry alike testified as CARB prepared to vote on the fate of the electric car. I'd also like to thank all the other stakeholders, particularly also the auto industry, uh, who is going to also have a major impact here. Uh, I like the fact that hydrogen might be in a position to uh, displace uh, the petroleum uh, products. I share your optimism on fuel cells, just not to the extent. I think it's a bait-and-switch um, uh, strategy. I hope I'm wrong. I'm concerned that we've picked numbers that are based entirely on fuel cells. What if fuel cells don't work? It seems that most of the recent changes to the mandate have been designed to ease the burden on the automakers. You're part of the Environmental Protection Agency, not the Corporate Profit Protection Agency. I think that we've been a, a contributor to this marketplace, too. I agree, and, I agree, and, I agree. Uh, but remember, there are many of you, we just had, when I'm giving more time to the auto manufacturers. Lou Browning, I think, had, had the uh, job to present the EPRI report, and he had been promised 10 minutes. Uh, one of the things Dr. we found Browning, is... I would appreciate if you could summarize this in three minutes. Okay. I thought I had 10, but... Uh, Helen Lloyd cut him off. 
whereas he had given the automakers uh, sort of unlimited time earlier in the day. And the improvements we need in fuel cells are to get, uh, mainly to get the cost down. In addition, we've recently certified and introduced the Honda FCX fuel cell vehicle. Largely, this work is being pushed forward through the California Fuel Cell Partnership, which has been very valuable in pulling together the diverse interests. Any new information on batteries that, that sort of didn't, didn't mesh with the overall conclusions was really just shut out uh, very fast by Alan Lloyd. Let's get it clear. I'm not trying to show any, any bias or anything here. And there were 80 people who came to speak for electric cars and only two industry representatives on the side to kill the mandate. We have four people out of 78 who are supporting this proposal. How did we end up with this? This is a tough, tough program. It's a revolutionary program. It pushes the automakers hard. And they don't like it and they push back hard. And as you deliberate today on the fate of this program, I urge you to summon all of your political courage to make the hard choices that you know you need to make on this program. Because when it comes to protecting the health of the people of California, there are simply no more easy choices to make. saw this as losing this wonderful opportunity that we had really invested a great deal in the infrastructure, in the technology. It was like the rug was pulled out. They gave it away. And it, to me, that's just sad. It's a sad commentary on the way our society and our system in, in the United States works. When GM introduced the EV1, California was setting the toughest auto pollution standards in the nation. 10% of all cars sold here this year were to be zero-emission vehicles. But California dropped those standards after being sued by automakers. But a lot of the vehicles, the Honda vehicles, the General Motors vehicles, were all leased and nobody had the option to buy. So the automakers took advantage of that and pulled all the cars off the road. They weren't willing to let people take the cars and actually drive them and keep driving them like normal cars. I tell you, when I noticed that GM was losing interest was when I wanted to release my car and they wouldn't let me. I've never had product I've had to beg and fight and, and uh, cajole and persist so much to get and then had to try and beg and, and fight and find any way possible to try and keep well, they, they did not they give them the option to buy. They didn't give buy. you an option to buy. They said, thank you for leasing the car. Turn Bye -bye. it in now. Turn it in That's by it. such and such a date, or you're going to be held liable. Jim had very quietly gone about taking cars back without anybody saying very much other than some of the drivers that complained about having their cars taken away, but never in a big organized fashion. So they had no choice but to turn them in or you know, face the legal consequences of basically stealing a car. To my knowledge, all the cars were turned in because people had too much to lose. To this day, the automakers have fought anyone actually understanding how much demand there was and how much demand that there is. And so we decided we were going to fight them in whatever way we could, and we became organizers. Across California, drivers held protests to save electric cars. I turned my head around about electric cars, and it broke the key of my addiction to oil.
Unable to change policy, activists staged a funeral to raise public awareness. It was the same month as the first stage one smog alert in Southern California in five years. I was an EV1 driver, still am, from 1998 until December of this year when GM will have to pry it out of my charger's dead cold hands. <laughs> what the detractors and the critics of electric vehicles have been saying for years is true. The electric vehicle is not for everybody. Given the limited range, it can only meet the needs of 90% of the population. <laughs> People used to ask me, why do you do what you do? And I, especially after I had my son told them, I figure if I do my job well enough, my son will never know a time before there were electric cars on the road. And he rode in an EV1 on the way over here, and he said, I wish we could keep the EV1 for a long time. And all I could say was me too. By the summer of 2004, there was only a single EV1 left in private hands in Southern California. Today is D-Day. Today is the end. GM did do it right. They did create a great, great car. It's well-engineered, it's well-designed, and it's enjoyable to drive. I've never seen a company be so cannibalistic about its own product before. It's, it's, it's such an odd experience. specialist I was talking about who gave me her car. Completely <laughs> sad, heartbroken. Are you kidding me? They're my babies. Every one of them. A lot of, a lot of human potential just drove on. Thank you, too. It does. With no more electric cars on the road, General Motors now had possession of their entire EV1 fleet. Why did they want them back? What were they going to do with these cars? We had discovered 78 EV1s parked in the back parking lot of a facility that GM owns in Burbank. But taking off the cars that were on the road, that were running fine, just let those people drive those cars until they can't drive them anymore. Where are you guys from? Uh, we're Hi. members of the EV1 Club, and EV1 we want to come and take a look at our cars. I know they're being mothballed here. Yeah, I have no authorization for you guys to come back there and look at the cars. Can we just go and, like... No. There were no clues as to where the cars were going until a rumor surfaced on the Internet. 
We had the understanding uh, through back channels that these vehicles were about to be taken to the Arizona Proving Grounds. Many EV-1s had apparently been trucked out of state to GM's vast Proving Grounds in Mesa, Arizona. It's so large, it has the track denoted on The location was off limits to the public, and there was no way of knowing where the EV-1s might be. General Motors and looking down we could see right next to the racetrack where the EV-1 was first tested we saw I don't know maybe 50 EV-1s uh, crushed and put on top of semi flatbeds right next to the yellow crusher. General Motors is almost finished off I think I don't imagine there's very many EV-1s left that haven't been been crushed out. It's pretty sad. They're one of four things that will happen with the EV-1s. They'll go to colleges and universities, to engineering schools. They'll go to museums and other displays across the country. Other EV-1 vehicles are being driven by our engineers, and the other option for the EV-1s at the end of their life is recycling. But know that everyone, every part of the EV-1 is going to be recycled, dismantled through a third party, and then reused. Everything is going to be recycled. We're not just going to crush it and send it off to a landfill. When I saw the picture of the pile of crushed cars, uh, it, it hurt, and I, you know, I thought it was uh, pretty spiteful. To see on the, um, you know, on the computer, on the inter internet, the, the crushed EV1s that GM did. It was, it was wrong, tragic. it was, was wrong, tragic. but more wrong is the reasons for it. All of a sudden, we were sort of left at odds. You know, what do we do now? And at the time that most of this was going on, no one had any idea that every automaker was going to jump ship. More internet tips revealed that the EV1s were not the only electric vehicles in jeopardy. A number of Ford Thinks and Ranger electric trucks were discovered in Palm Springs and rumored to be set for destruction. In Los Angeles, activists spotted a truckload of Toyota RAV4 EVs. Fearing the destination was a crushing facility, they chased it. The next morning, the truck turned back. That guy was going as fast as he possibly could in a big transport like that. Trying to lose us, it was clear, but wasn't able to do it. And of course, that did change Toyota's plans. It was so inconsistent, they didn't know what the hell to do. Then he goes to the end of the pier, and these two big security guards come out. They open this locked gate truck goes inside and, and then the security guards come out and surveil us. Somehow we ended up at this godforsaken place. Which has everything. It has spewing smoke into the harbor that kids have to breathe. It has an oil well and it has Toyota, which is supposed to be the greenest car company, but which is simultaneously crushing and hiding the fact that they're crushing clean RAV4 EVs instead of selling them to willing customers. No one had seen Honda's electric cars since they were taken from customers. Then, an episode of California's Green aired on PBS. 
So we're going to be able to see cars shredded today. Absolutely. Which is not something most of us get to see. We shred the car, about a car a minute, 1,000 cars a day on a good day. And what's interesting, the first thing we noticed when we drove up here, you're going to be shredding some new cars here, too. These look like perfectly good cars. Why are you shredding them up? A uh, little bit of a mystery, really, since I've been here the last eight years. They bring us these cars from the dealerships, and they say that they're test cars, and they've been brought over to to test various emissions and the insurance companies won't reinsure them so they have to watch them destroyed here. Boy, that seems like a shame. It's I a terrible. Like it. I'd like to drive off in one of these things. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the sound of a crushed automobile being shredded into a million pieces. There's no precedent for a car company rounding up every one of a particular kind of car and crushing them as if they're afraid one might get away. I don't think they wanted to be sure that none of them were driving around the streets anymore to remind people that there is such a thing as an electric car. People keep making all these analogies about, you know, crushing the EVs is a betrayal of the American dream. It's not a dream. I mean, it's here now. It may be a betrayal of my dream, <laughs> but it's a betrayal of the American reality. After the discovery of the crushed EV-1s in Arizona, electric car drivers took action. They vowed to keep watch over the remaining EV-1s being stored at the GM facility in Burbank. There are about 70 cars left in California. They're in the parking lot behind me, and they have plans to crush those as well. And we need to make a call out to action on General Motors to give them back you know, we ended up rallying enough troops in terms of interest and organizations to join our coalitions and then simply didn't leave and stayed, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's uh, 6 a.m. and I've been here for an hour, part of the vigil. We're making sure that GM doesn't sneak out their cars in the back lot. The first two weeks, we were pretty much ignored. It was uh, monsoon rains and it was kind of depressing to be out there, but at the same time, there's such a sense of mission. I was here this morning from about 5.45 a.m., and you know, it's pretty, it's pretty quiet. Finally, on day 15, we did this announcement of this offer. Of As the EV activist recorded the VIN numbers of the cars in storage, Chelsea led a last-ditch effort to buy the cars from GM. Okay, General Motors contends that no one wants these EV1s here. Would anybody be willing to buy them for the residual price of the lease? And within 48 hours, over 80 people had signed up. And there were only 78 cars in that lot, and already we had a waiting list for a car that wasn't available. I mean, it was a tremendous deja vu moment. <laughs> so, at this point, we thought it would be appropriate <laughs> to come full circle, join me in holding this check offering $1.9 million to General Motors to put these cars back on the road. Despite the offer, GM did not respond. The fate of the last 78 EV1s remained in doubt. A small group of activists would continue their vigil to keep the dream of the electric car alive. Who controls the future? Uh, whoever has the biggest club. It's um, in more ways than one. 
One they can bash you in and one they can belong to. Gentlemen, gentlemen. I know you're all worried. And I agree. There's plenty to be worried about. Like this solar power plant. Already operational outside Los Angeles. Photovoltaic cells. They convert sunlight directly into electricity. Fluorescent. Lasts ten times as long as a conventional light bulb. Uses only a quarter of the power. Super windows. Insulate as well as ten sheets of glass. An electric car. Partially powered by solar panels. But the truth is, gentlemen, I'm not worried about any of these things. Because no one's ever going to know about them. So there's all these conspiracy theories out there about who killed the electric car. So really, who killed the electric car? Well, unfortunately, I can't summarize that in one sentence. What killed the electric vehicle, very simply, I think, is lack of corporate wisdom. Uh, in my opinion, it's, it's big oil that killed the electric car. Alan Lloyd killed the electric car program. I was there when he did it. The California Air Resources Board killed the electric car under huge pressure from the auto companies. They were an accessory to the murder, but the murder was committed by the General Motors company. I don't believe that for a minute. GM would sell you a car that ran on pig shit if it, if it sold. Car makers argued that there was not enough demand for the electric car. Claiming to have spent millions of dollars on advertising, they said buyers weren't interested. But did consumers even know that the car existed? Did you hear this? Did you ever see this car advertised or anything about it? Never. That's what I'm trying to say. It's totally under the scope of the radar. I don't know who drives an EV1, actually. You know, anybody. Anybody. Maybe Fernando. I know. Fernando, Fernando did, you, did you ever drive an EV1? I've heard of him. He, he, he's heard of him. So they're not making this cars in California anymore? I uh, know, they're not making them anywhere. That's really too bad. We need those cars. So, why are they getting rid of it? Well, they uh, said that there's no demand for the car. Are they insane? That's a no-brainer. Of course there's a demand. Save gas, save people, save air, save oxygen, save the world. All sounds good to me. <laughs> We've been selling vehicles for a century, and you, as you might imagine, we sort of figured out what people wanted. If you ask them, they say, well, I want a 300-mile range, I want to be able to go 85 or 90 miles an hour, and I want to carry four passengers and have a big trunk, which is basically what we were already selling. I've said this time and time again, people will buy anything you convince them to buy. They feed people enough, and they, they believe that's the diet. Consumers, they couldn't see the difference between an electric car and a car they were already driving. You know, because they don't, they don't read environmental impact. You know, they don't read political instability caused by oil production in the Middle East. All they read is, does this car work and how much does it cost? What really killed EVs was American consumers because they did not accept this idea, uh, did not embrace it, uh, that uh, vehicles could have these limited ranges and still be functional, useful, practical. Did the electric car die because of battery technology? Did EVs really not have enough range? And did car companies use the best batteries available? Battery technology at that time was lead-acid batteries. Again, allowed the car to go 60 miles. 
if you started out on a trip knowing that you were going to go dead in 60 miles, you'd be nervous about making the trip. People think that they need a car that will go 300 miles and be able to charge it up or refuel it in five minutes. For virtually you know, 90, 95 percent of your driving, you really don't need that. You need a vehicle that will go at least 60 miles or so, and that way your, your daily commute is covered. For those who wanted greater range from an EV, 100 miles or more, a better battery already existed, developed by a well-known inventor working in Troy, Michigan, about 30 miles from General Motors headquarters. Standing. And Iris Ovshinsky. Sure. I think you shouldn't do it that way. You should say you're Stan Ovshinsky and then I'll say I'm Iris Ovshinsky. Don't do it that way. That's funny. With over 200 patents to his name, Stan Ovshinsky had pioneered a new battery and GM purchased controlling share of his company. We were chosen over 60 different uh, big companies like Westinghouse and others who wanted to uh, win the race to make the batteries that would uh, be used in pure electric cars and we were chosen because we had a battery and uh, to us putting it in a car was not the most gigantic thing what did we were supposed to do but you uh, did sort of expect champagne and roses i expected champagne and roses they when i said that we were going to put in a paragraph into a newspaper that said we had achieved this I really expected congratulations to flow in. And then I knew that something was different when the opposite happened. Oshensky was censured for publicizing his battery advances without permission and asked not to run advertising in national publications. The EV-1 debuted with a weaker battery. It would be another two years before Oshensky's batteries were installed in the EV-1. The first version of the EV-1 had defective Delco batteries in them and they kept failing. So that was GM's failure on those batteries. Once they put good batteries in, they didn't have any problems. Ultimately, GM sold its share in Oshinsky's company to an unlikely buyer. Then when the nickel metal hydride batteries were improved so that they're now lasting longer than the life of the car and cheaper than an engine, Chevron Texaco stepped in and purchased control from General Motors of Mashinsky technology. The oil companies do not feel threatened by battery technology because they effectively crushed it. You know, the electric car is kind of an interesting case study. I mean, it, it, it was such an abysmal failure that I think there are a lot of people involved in the initial decision making and trying to uh, pointing fingers at, at whose responsibility it is. To Basra and all Iraq comes good news with the opening of a new oil field. The pipeline runs across the desert to the Persian Gulf at Fayal. There, tankers load up with the precious fuel the world needs so badly. Yes, it's a big day for Iraq, and there's a feast to celebrate. Sheep stuffed with rice and a host of other good things. But that's only the first of the good things that will come to Iraq, thanks to oil. Oil companies have rarely shied away from global issues, but why did they lobby so hard to build public opposition to the electric car in California? I find it difficult to rationalize why um, the oil industry got so intimately involved in this other than maybe they saw it as a threat to uh, what I would call the monopoly they had on, on providing the transportation fuel. There's no question that people who 
uh, control the marketplace today, the oil companies, have a strong incentive to discourage alternatives, uh, except the alternatives that they themselves control. And, you know, just as General Motors 40, 50 years ago bought up the trolley systems and shut them down, uh, the oil companies have opposed the creation of an electric infrastructure. I, I differ strongly with that. We, we did not kill the electric car. The petroleum industry did not kill the electric car. What killed the electric car was antiquated technology. It's a good example and something that we should not repeat, an example that we need to avoid. There's still a, roughly a trillion barrels worth of oil in the Earth's crust. And if you figure that the average price of that subsequent oil will be $100 a barrel, that's $100 trillion worth of business yet to be done. However, at some point when an alternative is good enough, people will snap over. Uh, and that's what the oil companies fear the most. We use 280 million gallons of gasoline a week in California. Right now the price is 220. Well, a year ago it was, it was 120. Okay, there's a dollar more a gallon. Somebody's making 280 million dollars more a week this year. It's the same gas, the same pipeline, the same refineries. The profits are outstanding. What the oil companies feared is that electric vehicles would, would become successful six years from now. What the automobile companies feared was that they'd be losing money on electric vehicles in the next six months. Even as car companies made electric cars, they fought them at every step. What was their motive? Why were they so determined to take them off the road? I mean, I think in the beginning, General Motors didn't believe the car was going to catch on. I don't think they thought they'd ever have to worry about something like a conspiracy to keep it from happening. They hated the mandate. They hated it so much that they ended up not even really wanting to be in the business of EVs. What I frankly detected was a huge resentment about being told what type of motor vehicle had to be made. And it became a fight of principle rather than one of trying to uh, actually technologically solve the problem. I do know that uh, I was surprised at some of the stances they took in Sacramento in arguing. End of comment. In a confidential 1995 memo, the American Automobile Manufacturers Association sought to hire a PR firm to manage a so-called grassroots and educational campaign to create a climate to repeal the mandate. The challenge, according to the document, was greater consumer acceptance of electric vehicles. Why would the car companies campaign so hard against their own creation? I made the case at the General Motors board that the reason for the EV1 was to give General Motors a very big head start in how you transform electricity into the drive power for the car. And we give them two, three, years lead. And in my judgment, it did. But my frustration was they did not capitalize on the lead. And the reason, which was discussed at the board, was that there was not a profit seen to be coming out of either electric cars or hybrids. They could not understand how Toyota could possibly make 
a profit out of the Prius, for example, they were going to lose their shirt. And as evidence has shown, uh, I don't think Toyota is losing their shirt. If loss of revenue worried car companies, then the electric car posed another problem altogether. It had no internal combustion engine, the cornerstone of the auto industry. These parts represent a large part of a dealership's income through the, uh, the replacement and the maintenance. Essentially, this group of parts is a visual representation of the profits that the auto industry doesn't make when they sell an EV1 or an EV in general. I can actually identify a lot of these that didn't get used on the EV1 program. You know, oil filters you need four times a year. That was probably the most prominent thing along with the several quarts of oil every time. I didn't enjoy working on internal combustion engines just due to the fact you got so dirty. And working on EV1, I basically go home looking like this. Uh, servicing the EV1 was uh, pretty simple. It came in about every 5,000 miles. We'd put it in the air, we'd uh, rotate the tires, add washer fluid to it, and send it back out on the street. It's amazing, look how dirty I've gotten just in handling this stuff. <laughs> it's kind of uh -huh. sad. In order to sincerely market a clean car, you have to suggest that your core product is dirty and that it uses oil and that it uses gas and that it increases our dependence on foreign oil and here's this product that doesn't. It looks very schizophrenic but I think it, when it started it, we can show the people in California we can meet the zero emission requirements and later on so do we want to show them that we can meet it? That means all of our other cars. But the more it caught on the more that there was this dichotomy between clean and efficient and non-polluting versus a suburban. Car companies had convinced themselves that they could not make money in the short term with the electric car. In order to do that, they would need an entirely different vehicle. General Motors made a commitment to the Hummer because they could see the Hummer would make them money. As SUVs first came out, people were like, I can't drive what? that. That big old Especially thing. Ladies, that's a tank. I can't see out of that. I'm going to murder somebody in that. That's... Ooh, that's too that's big. That's too big for me. But they convinced people, this is you safer. You need a big car. car. You need this Bigger, for your family. Safer. The idea of a, uh, of a penny-pinching EV1 that was super green, you know, that didn't get a lot of traction. Whereas the idea of a gigantic uh, SUV that would, you know, crush your neighbor, that did get a lot of traction. Basically, that tells us what the 90s was about. What began as a $25,000 tax break grew to $100,000 when Congress passed the President's economic stimulus package last spring. We think small businesses need to have support at this time to keep them afloat, to keep the economy moving ahead. But there's an encouragement for the small business person not just to stay afloat, but to go buy the biggest gas guzzler <laughs> there is. The 6,000-pound car, the biggest does that make sense? I, I don't think we can we can dictate what vehicles people buy. I think the goal this here is... This is encouraging them. I mean, you can almost buy the whole car for the tax break. Well, I, I'm not going to concede that that would be the way these would be used or that... Well, there's some would, evidence that is how they're being used. Well, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see what, what happens. <laughs>
I don't want to see Hummers driven off the market by the government. I, I want to see everything given a, a level equal chance. The thing that bothers me is that, that in fact it's not a level equal chance. We're using our military to ensure the flow of oil. We, we're using tax dollars to support the car companies in different ways and we're not using our uh, tax money to do the things that we really need to do to prepare for the future. Federal policy has always had tremendous power to shape the future. As it gave enormous incentives to buy SUVs, the federal government also sued California to stop the electric car. Some pointed to the influence of the oil and auto industries. They control things in Washington. They in the automobile industry. Now they've got Andy Card, their former lobbyist, right there as chief of staff in the White House. And I guess they don't have to pay lobbyists anymore, uh, so they're saving a little money there. Andrew Card was chief of staff when the Bush administration joined the suit against California. Card had also been president and CEO of the American Automobile Manufacturers Association during its campaign to kill California's electric car mandate. Industries began to see, if we don't kill this cancer in California, it's going to spread to the rest of the country and I think it became a strategy um, on the part of many companies to to make it a national issue. I was even told once by a very prominent congressman who I shall not mention by name that that I can understand and tolerate uh, what you're doing in California but if you ever try to spread your California program to the rest of my country I'm going to have to do battle with you. Sometimes I listen to the energy debate and I think I'm watching an old movie uh, that was made back in the 70s because the discussion is exactly the same as it was 30 years ago. Our average vehicle, average car on the road is less efficient than it was 20 years ago. And this is just a complete abdication of leadership, political leadership, really, uh, because it's impossible to get fuel economy standards passed through the U.S. Congress. After the OPEC oil embargo in the 1970s, the U.S. government created Corporate Average Fuel Economy, or CAFE standards, to improve fuel economy in American vehicles. As a result, in less than 10 years, fuel economy increased by more than 50%. Unfortunately, two decades later, there has been virtually no change. Jimmy Carter was the last president that really made uh, energy uh, a high priority and he devoted his first 90 days in office to putting together an energy plan. Uh, I was there as part of it and uh, no president since then has put that kind of effort into it. I am tonight setting a clear goal for the energy policy of the United States. Beginning this moment, this nation will never use more foreign oil than we did in 1977. Never. There was just a radical change when Ronald Reagan came in and took down the solar panels off the White House roof that Jimmy had put up and essentially declared war on the sun. I put a freeze on pending regulations and set up a task force under Vice President Bush to review regulations with an eye toward getting rid of as many as possible. I have decontrolled oil 
which should result in more domestic production and less dependence on foreign oil. When Reagan came in, he was not a supporter of fuel economy, of conservation, of renewables. And in the mid-1980s, he basically stopped any improvements in fuel economy standards for cars. And then in 1985, the price of oil collapsed. I would not lay all of the blame at Ronald Reagan's feet by any means. Uh, I think he had his share of responsibility, but so did the Saudis, who made the very calculating decision to drop the price of oil dramatically principally to ensure that none of these alternative fuels and, and energy saving measures really produced the desired results. So they kept the junkie hooked up, in other words. And as a result, we are today still addicted to oil. When Clinton came in, and I worked for Clinton, we were definitely quite interested in trying to uh, come up with alternatives and, and improve the fuel economy of the fleet. Politically, it was still very unattractive. The automobile lobby was quite powerful then, so the administration kind of made a bargain with the automobile companies, this partnership for a new generation of vehicles, where we would develop hybrid vehicles, a combination of a gasoline engine and an electric drivetrain. In return, we wouldn't really pursue fuel economy standards. I never met a five-year-old kid like this in my life, and when I shook hands with him, he said, I'm glad to meet you, Mr. President. I want you to make a car that runs on electricity and doesn't pollute the air. But I was so impressed, I went to get Al Gore, and I introduced him to this five-year-old boy, and he said, Hello, Mr. Vice President. I intend to spend my life working on this. And he said, I am going to help you develop an electric car that has no pollution. And he, Al Gore says, That means we're going to be partners. He said, Yes, I guess so. But you don't understand. I'm going to spend my whole life on this. <laughs> For eight, nine years, we spent about a billion dollars of the taxpayers' monies to develop hybrid vehicles. And ironically, the U.S. car companies didn't put any hybrids on the road. And in fact, the minute George Bush got elected president, the U.S. car companies walked away from hybrids. But, and this is the irony, the U.S. program got the Japanese very nervous. So Toyota and Honda, in response, developed hybrids because uh, they didn't want to be beaten by the U.S. Uh, now they lure people into thinking they're doing something by their sweet talk, uh, but I remember way back yonder they used to have this joke, and it's not a joke anymore. We're giving the environmentalists the music and the industry the action. The second step toward making America less dependent on foreign oil is to produce and refine more crude oil here at home in environmentally sensitive ways. By far the most promising site for oil in America is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. While it is predicted that the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge could supply America with slightly more than one year's supply of oil, simply raising fuel economy standards to 40 miles per gallon could save the same amount of fuel within 15 years. The oil industry and the automobile companies are resistant to change. The American people need to be reminded that it took a law to get seat belts in the cars. 
It took a law to get airbags in the cars. It took a law to get the mileage up from 12 to 20 miles per gallon. It took a law to get catalytic converters to control the pollution. And I think clean cars are too important to be left to the automobile industry. The California mandate forced automakers to make electric cars. When California changed it, the cars vanished. Why did California retreat from the bold law it created? Uh, having visited all the car companies, they were saying, well, look, we can't produce these increasing numbers of the uh, battery electric vehicles. And uh, I became convinced that what are we supposed to do here? Is our job to clean the air? Or is it to force a certain number of a type of technology on the road? Alan Lloyd uh, failed in his leadership to, to really steer the zero emission vehicle mandate toward a, a successful outcome. Oh, I know Alec very well. Know? I know so, Alec very well. And so uh, we had some, we had some uh, heartfelt uh, memos going back. And it pained me because I have the utmost respect for Alec. And it really pained me to be, be uh, accused of uh, basically abandoning uh, the battery electrics. In addition to his role as chairman of the Air Resources Board, Alan Lloyd had another position. Just four months before the meeting that killed the electric car, Lloyd accepted the chairmanship of the California Fuel Cell Partnership. I've been involved with hydrogen since the early 90s. When I became chair of ARB 10 years later, I knew a lot about hydrogen. So for me, I'm very much fact technology driven. And so maybe you can say that's an asset or a handicap in terms of hydrogen because I, I, I knew what, what, what could be done. Uh, excuse me here, I want to watch my little baby get off here. Car makers convinced California that the facts supported the development of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Were they a better option than electric cars? Toyota's national manager of advanced technologies, Bill Reinert, took their prototype hydrogen fuel cell SUV on a press tour. One of our customers really didn't like this car anywhere near as much as his EV1. And the reason was not because it had anything but bad about the car. The reason was because his EV1, he could charge it at home, charge it at work. And even though it provided limited range, um, he didn't have to worry about getting his car charged up. With this car, with a limited access to a hydrogen filling station, he said he spent his whole day planning how to get hydrogen in the car and how to get back. It's really humbling. It's, it's, the, the more you know, the more you re realize you really don't know what the issues are going to be going forward. The number one worst question is when, can, when will that be on the market? When will that be on the market? That, that's the worst question. Consumers are probably going to want to know how long it would be for this to be mass-produced. That's quite a ways off. We've got some real technical issues we've got to solve with hydrogen storage, with durability, with cost reduction. Is it a practical solution at this point? The cars have a limited range. The durability of the cars isn't so very good. And the, uh, let me see what else. Oh, they don't do well in cold weather. Other than that, they're great. <laughs> Have you ever been to a dog race? You know, there's the mechanical rabbit that's out in front, and the dogs never quite reach it. Well, the fuel cell is the equivalent of that mechanical rabbit. We're going for it. For the last 15 years, they've been telling us the fuel cells are 10 to 15 years off. 
you're an oil company, your business is to be selling a fuel. They think that it's a long time off, 30 years, uh, and they want to have a product to sell. So from that point, they're protecting themselves. But the other side is they're protecting the status quo. We see in Scientific American a, a double-page ad by General Motors and Shell both, touting both the fuel cell that General Motors is doing and also Shell as a potential supplier of hydrogen. If hydrogen can do a better job as an energy carrier than electricity, then by gosh, it should be the, the carrier of choice. The problem is, it's not even close. How far will this car ride on that amount of fuel? Uh, it gets approximately about, uh, maybe about 100, 125 miles. A fuel cell car powered by hydrogen made with electricity uses three to four times more energy than a car powered by batteries. This is the beginning of some fantastic technology, and uh, well, thanks for having us out here. We're going to look at some other vehicles in a minute, but uh, you know, hydrogen is the wave of the future. Today, there's a lot of enthusiasm for hydrogen cars, but you know, I wrote a whole book, The Hype About Hydrogen. I think it's pretty clear that hydrogen is a much tougher alternative fuel than any other alternative fuel we've ever pursued. So these are the five miracles that you need successful hydrogen car in the marketplace. First, your average hydrogen car costs a million dollars. That's got to drop. Second, uh, no known material to humankind can store enough hydrogen on board the car to give you the range people want. Miracle number three is the fuel is wildly expensive. Even hydrogen from dirty fossil fuels is two or three times more expensive than gasoline. Fourth, you have to have the fueling infrastructure. You know, we have 180,000 gas stations. Someone's going to have to build at least 10 or 20,000 hydrogen fueling stations before anybody is going to be very interested. And miracle five is you have to hope and pray that the competitors in the marketplace uh, don't get any better. Because right now, uh, the best car in the marketplace just got a lot better. The hybrid vehicle still runs on gasoline. You can fuel it everywhere. It has twice the range of a regular car. Current hybrid vehicles depend on gasoline, but use an electric motor to increase their fuel economy. And if battery technology keeps getting steadily better, then the best hybrid and then plug-in hybrid in the year 2020 will be vastly superior to the best uh, hydrogen car. You guys have filmed me long enough to know that, you know, I like to hear myself talk, number one. And number two, that I'm not going to dance around the issue. And, and, and these could be a long ways out into the future. Toyota says, fuel cell cars 30 years away. Okay, then I get the calls from the DOE and the state of California and what in the hell are you doing and all the other fuel cell manufacturers. You know, we're trying to make a living here and you say this and uh, it's awful. Just because a lot of people want it to work, it's no guarantee. That's Disneyland, you know, wishing makes it come true. So I'm, I don't work in Disneyland. I'm, I work in the real world where wishing doesn't make it come true, and you've really got to work hard to make it come true. Hopefully we do. On the 27th day of their vigil, activists finally heard from GM. Paul Scott calls. Are you guys busy? They're, they're, they're calling in the cars right now. GM is loading the cars on trucks right now. 
We're like, what? What? Well, yeah, we'll drop everything and run on down there right now. Jim, media blast just went is going out. Okay. Both are closed. They loaded them up. You know, tires screeching and panels cracking against each other as they shoved them onto the trucks. We're up against most of the money in the world. We're up against the oil industry, the automobile industry. It's David versus Goliath in a very big way. But if there are enough Davids in the world, we can win. Forever. Give us maybe just to the grass there if you just get out of the driveway for us so we don't have to put hands on anybody. Thank you. On March 15, 2005, the last EV-1s in the Burbank lot were taken away and destroyed. number of electric vehicles in the collection and hybrids but we're especially happy about this and this is a special one there she is my baby number 99 <laughs> you might recognize this car i do it was chris's car sure was please have a seat there's only one challenge. It doesn't start up. <laughs> well, you know that um, General Motors disabled them. I know. We wish they didn't, but they had to. I so we understand that. We're just happy to have it. Yeah. 
that is such an important part of automotive history. It is. To have a manufacturer like General Motors participate right. in this program. It's wonderful. The thing is, it shouldn't be a part of automotive history. Ever since 1939, they would dangle this electric car. They'd have a few models out there. They'd say there's something in another few years. And it never came because they never intended it to come. They make too much money with their technological stagnation and the internal combustion engine. As something becomes scarce, then there's economic pressures to find alternatives. And as long as no alternatives exist, the scarce item can become increasingly profitable. These are the same batteries that are used in your laptop computer, and we have 6,800 cells. And it can go 300 miles on one charge, running about 70 miles an hour. It's now at 0 to 60 in 3.6 seconds. So it's really amazing performance for any car, not just an electric car. Those same batteries could be put in EV1 and make it a 300 mile range car very easily. Really? So it's such a shame seeing these cars destroyed when you can upgrade them. I know what I did and why I did it. And if I had to do the same thing again based on the data, and I've seen what's happened to date, I would do exactly the same thing. For most Americans, when you talk about sensible energy policy, what most people hear is, you're going to make me drive a small car, you're going to make me keep my house cold, and essentially you're going to make me live like a European. It's a lack of leadership. It's a lack of being able to take on the oil industry and the automobile industry and recognize that they are not Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam has to be Uncle Sam. And Uncle Sam is acting like they're General Motors. They're squandering huge amounts of money on hydrogen cars, which by any reasonable estimate are not going to be selling in the consumer market for two decades at the earliest. And I think it will go down as one of the biggest blunders in the history of the automotive industry. Have you never heard that expression? Death by a million cuts, little tiny cuts, eventually someone will bleed to death. The fight over electric cars was quite simply a fight about the future. Goliath won this round. But now Goliath has new problems. Oil prices have soared. America is further entangled in the Middle East. And global warming is an increasingly serious threat. What can we do to reshape the future? This city is replete with famous names that are no longer here. Why? Because they couldn't adapt to change. We all have to adapt to change. Don't debate about who's to blame or what to blame. Let's build new industries. Let's make America strong again. Chelsea continues her work with a new group called Plug In America, working with citizens across the political spectrum to promote an independent energy future. You know, I met Jim Woolsey at an event, and as it turns out, he was already a bit of a fan of stuff that we were doing, and he's come to work with Plug In America. And that's one example of the types of relationships that have to exist 
in order to further what we all want. I've uh, served in uh, four uh, administrations and with presidential appointments, all in different aspects of national security. And the fact that two-thirds of the world's proven reserves of oil are in the Middle East and we're so dependent on that part of the world is a very big national security question. Well, behind me there are two things. One is a Prius, hybrid gasoline electric uh, Toyota, and an electrical uh, substation. Today, they don't have much to do with one another, but there's a chance that they might be able to have something to do with one another in a positive way. And that's where I think the plug-in hybrid is the natural next step and that is available to us today. This is a plug-in hybrid Prius, which is a modification to a normal Toyota Prius that allows you to travel, which gives you up to 150, 180 miles per gallon for the first 50 to 60 miles of the day. We don't need an expensive charging infrastructure to use this car. You can just plug it in anywhere in your garage. So we make the environmentalists happy because it's cleaner. We make the uh, neoconservatives happy because it uses less gasoline. Well, everyone's happy because it uses less gasoline. Plugging in could go a long way to reducing our dependence on oil. And generating that electricity with the wind and the sun would create even less pollution. With his battery technology in most hybrid cars, Ovchinsky has also built one of the largest thin-film solar factories in the world. This is just an ordinary steel roof. And this is with the adhesive. You just put the shingles down, nail them down, you're in there, you run your wires down. Everything is plug and play. Anybody that wants to make a revolution shouldn't grab a gun. Just go and start working like we do to change the world by using science and technology. I am so optimistic about the future. I mean, even given everything that we've seen and all of the EV wars, I remain an optimist. One of the things that makes America work is this rampant grassroots agitation for things that are new. When you get a coalition of that size and that surprising character, you get politicians' attention. And here we have a serious problem. America is addicted to oil. I call all this a potential coalition between the tree huggers, the do-gooders, the sodbusters, the cheap hawks, and the evangelicals. That's a pretty good-sized coalition. We are about to enter into a world that's truly renewable and completely clean if we just had the willpower to implement it. Well, you don't have to wait for major auto companies to do it. You can do it yourself like what I'm doing here. Old cars, new cars, doesn't really matter. I can convert anything. You haven't seen anything yet. The future is going to be very bright in this area. And the forces are all pushing in that direction, both the economic and technological forces. So, you know, once people see these things, they say, well, I want to do this. And so the word is getting out. That gives us hope. Hope that we can end up our lives having achieved what we set out to do, and we have. And you still have so many more years you want to do things. I wouldn't have enough time. I've, I am shooting with hot dice right now.